Have you guys ever not wanted to do something? Yes. Like, yeah. Like go to class, for instance. When I was a kid, uh, I hated the dentist, and uh, I went reluctantly to get some like work. I don't even remember what it was. I was probably like eight years old, uh, and I remember I vehemently I was like screaming at my mom. I was like, I hate the dentist. Over and over again, I just said I hate it, and and then like we got to the dentist, and I didn't stop doing that. Like I was like screaming, and I was crying, and then I got on the thing that used to lay on for him to do the work, and I was like still screaming, and I was like I was like eight years old, and I remember my mom had to do like she like laid down, grabbed me, and like did a bear hug on me so that I would stay there, like I wouldn't leave. Uh, that's a true story. And I still go to that dentist, and they're like, oh, you're the kid that cried that one. Yeah, yeah. They all remember me. It's crazy. Uh, that's what I imagine Jonah is feeling like when we meet him in chapter 3. Uh, so just to recap really briefly, three weeks ago we established that the book of Jonah is super out of the ordinary, right? We expect a book of prophecy. It's not what we get. Uh, in chapter 1, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach against it. Uh, and he blatantly disobeys God, goes the opposite direction. Uh, yeah, and he goes to Tarshish, which is like on the other side of the world in that time. So he disobeys God. God sends a severe mercy, a massive storm, and a massive fish to bring him back on track. If that sounds interesting, all of our sermons are on the internet somewhere. So just talk to me afterwards if you don't have the links for that. This week, we're going to pick up in chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, uh, pull that out. If you have one on your phone, you can do that too. It'll be on the screen. Um, yeah, we're going to read through the whole thing. It's like 10 chapters, or 10 verses. Sorry. <laughs> 10 chapters. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> All right, so here we go, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, and going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And from the greatest of them to the least of them, they put on sackcloth, uh, and they called for a fast. Now the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, but he did not do it. So, I think there's three natural breaks in this chapter. Um, and first we see Jonah's recommissioning. So you notice it said the second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Uh, really wants to point out to us that Jonah disobeyed the first time, and now God's saying it again. And Jonah's ready to agree to that, right? He's got quite the story. He has run from God and effectively been, you know, mama bared, hugged back to Nineveh. Uh, and so God has enough grace for Jonah's heart that he brings him back lovingly to the mission that uh, he was appointed to. Now, when Jonah reaches the city of Nineveh, the book tells us that it was an exceedingly large city. It wasn't just a big city. It was a three days walk, to be exact. And this is a weird detail because... 
we know now through archaeology that no city was this big. Like, this would have been a massive city. Uh, modern historians believe that this detail is supposed to do two things. First of all, it's supposed to be funny, right? It's not just a big city. It's a huge city. Uh, and then secondly, they believe that it's referring to the cities around Nineveh as well as Nineveh, the actual city. So just all you Kelly kids think about like Chicago, the city versus like the suburbs. You know, you say you're from Chicago, but we know you're not. We know you're like an hour outside of Chicago. It's true. Okay. Uh, so when Jonah gets a day's walk into this journey, he just stops and it says that he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So I've heard that many pastors say this. They say that this sermon is only five words in Hebrew. And it's probably one of the worst sermons that has ever been recorded in history. Uh, think about it, right? What is missing from this sermon? Well, first of all, there's no mention of anything that the Ninevites have done wrong. He didn't even tell them what they did. Uh, there's no mention of how they can fix it and avert what's coming to them. And, most importantly, there's no mention of who is going to bring this destruction, right? There's no mention of God. Uh, this would be like if I went out to campus and right outside Valentine, sometimes we set up a table out there and talk to students about Jesus, about CSF, trying to get them connected. Uh, it'd be like if I did that, except minus like giving out stickers and stuff, and I just stood there and I waited for class to get out, and I was like, 40 more days, IU's going to burn, and then I did like a mic drop and like walked away, and that was it, okay? It would be unhelpful at best and like incredibly irritating and weird at, at worst, Okay? Because I didn't give a reason, I didn't tell you why, I didn't tell you how you can fix it, and I didn't tell you who's going to bring it. And I didn't tell you about God, right? Uh, many scholars think that Jonah actually intentionally gave a bad sermon, and I don't want to, I don't want to spoil this too much, because we'll get into this next week, or not next week, next week you'll be at home for Thanksgiving. But the week after, we're going to talk about Jonah chapter 4, uh, where it says that Jonah, it really reveals his heart towards the Ninevites. He hates them. And so scholars think that he intentionally gave a bad sermon so that they would not be saved. And I would agree with this, but I also think it's more nuanced than that. Uh, have you ever heard a poorly delivered sermon that made you repent and turn towards God? Some of you are probably like, yeah, listen to it all right now. I, yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, seriously, though, like if I came up here and I delivered a sermon and you left and you're like, oh my gosh, like God really worked in my heart. But like, I didn't, like, I wasn't good at speaking, and, like, you, like it was, like, you could tell it was very bad. Uh, who would you praise for your repentance, right? Like, who would you give the praise? It wouldn't be me. It would be God, right? When the messenger sucks at his job, but the message itself is extraordinary, you don't praise the messenger. You praise the one who sent the messenger. I love how Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, I think it should be on the screen, it says, uh, brothers and sisters... Consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The Apostle Paul is saying that God has chosen what is foolish to shame the wise. He's taken unexpected things and people and is doing amazing things through them. God loves to do this. He takes people in situations that look like they have no chance of changing for the better, and he does unthinkable, amazing things through them. Throughout the Bible, God uses liars, idolaters, adulterers, murderers to serve his purposes. So don't ever think that God can't use you because of your past. Don't ever believe the lie that God can't use you in the context that he has placed you in 
to serve his kingdom and make a difference. God can use anyone in any situation to display his glory and his grace. God used a deeply flawed man and a poorly delivered sermon to display his glory through the repentance of Nineveh. Right, so first we see Jonah's recommissioning and how his sermon, even if it's intentionally bad, how it still displays God's glory. I'm going to take a quick, awkward drink break, so just give me a second. Oh, it's good stuff. All right. So, next, we see Nineveh's repentance. Uh, so we see Jonah's recommissioning, and now we see Nineveh's repentance. Uh, to be completely honest, throughout this sermon series, we've been pretty mean to Jonah. We've, we've given him kind of a, a bad rap. And I, I want us to see his flaws for what they are, because they are there. Uh, but I also want to take a second and humanize him for us uh, here a little bit. Uh, during Jonah's lifetime, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria was known, was and is known to be one of the most violent nations to ever exist. Uh, some of their tactics of torture were depicted on uh, stone carving here. So on the far left is an Assyrian, and he's cutting off the limbs of a live captive, and to the right of that guy is a guy that has been impaled from the bottom up with a pole. And they would do it, if you did it properly, uh, they wanted you to stay alive for as long as possible. So, these guys were awful. I'm not going to get too much into it. Uh, I just want us to understand they were creating new ways to be evil. Okay? Like, these guys were bad people. You can switch the slide back now. Get that out of here. Um, so, it kind of makes sense why Jonah has so much disdain for them, right? Uh, and, and if you're not understanding it still, uh, to modernize the situation... Think about Germany in 1944, right? Under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, the Nazis were responsible for the murder of millions of Jews in unspeakable war crimes. Um, now imagine that the word of the Lord comes to a Jewish man in England and tells him he needs to parachute into Berlin and preach repentance to the Germans. I think in some part of us, we kind of all would respond like Jonah. We'd be like, no, I don't want to do that because that would mean that they could be saved. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, yeah, it, it, even from a far perspective, like, we're, I mean, that was almost 100 years ago, and we can still say, yeah, God, I think you'd be just if you just kind of brought justice to them, right? But when Jonah talks to the Ninevites, something very, very different and kind of outrageous happens, honestly. Uh, the text tells us that from the greatest of them to the least of them, they all put on sackcloth and ashes and repented of their sin. And sackcloth was just a type of clothing you would wear. It was very uncomfortable. Um, and it was meant to signify your humility and your repentance before God, or before a God in the Ninevites' case. So uh, the text doesn't tell us who Jonah told or how many people heard his words originally, but apparently it spread like wildfire because from you know the Elon Musk's millionaires to the homeless people, everyone hears about Jonah's words and believes in God. Uh, and maybe some of the king's servants heard and showed up to work in sackcloth because eventually this sermon makes its way to the most powerful man on the face of the earth at the time. Uh, the king, right? What do you think he's going to do when he hears this judgment on his city? Be angry? <laughs> maybe? Call for the, you know, the torture and execution of Jonah? Probably. That's what I would assume. But that's not what happens, right? This book is full of that. The king of Nineveh stands and he removes his royal garments. He removes these symbols of power and authority in exchange for symbols of humility and repentance. And he issues an official decree for everyone to do the same, including the animals in the kingdom. 
like, and this is another one of those details that's meant to make us laugh, right? This king is so spiritually aware that in an effort to avoid calamity at all costs, he's like, well, just in case, let's make sure the cows repent in case they ever did anything that was, you know, reason enough for God to destroy us, right? Like, that's crazy. And they're believing in a God that they don't even know because Jonah didn't tell them, right? You'd think that the text would say they believed in Jonah's words, but it doesn't. It says that they believed in God. Now, in Hebrew, the personal name of God that he revealed to his people is Yahweh. Uh, it's typically noted by Lord within all caps, so like all caps, L-O-R-D. Um, but Hebrew also has a name uh, for God that is general, and that's Elohim. Uh, and so we would, just to give us context, that's like, we would probably think of that like God with a little g, like multiple unspecified gods. This is the word that the king of Nineveh uses. He doesn't even know who this God is. Because Jonah, by the way, didn't tell him. Uh, but even then, he still takes these words seriously and has the whole kingdom repent. That is insane. And if you're like me, you're a little bit skeptical, probably. It's like, did a whole city really repent? Come on, like, that's crazy. Uh, now, I can't scientifically prove it to you because I wasn't there, okay? But uh, I want to just give us some, some facts that historians have found uh, in the records of uh, Nineveh. Uh, first, prior to the years that Jonah most likely would have preached, uh, the city went through rebellions, they went through plagues, and even there was an eclipse of the sun, which was like bad news in that day. Like you would have known that some spiritual deity was uh, mad at you if that was the case. Uh, and then secondly, historians have noted this stagnation period where every year the Assyrians would go to war, and they have records of this. Every year they would go to war. But around the time that Jonah comes around, there's this weird, like, multiple years in a row where they do not go to war, which was incredibly uncharacteristic of them at that time. And so I think there's pretty good evidence that this revival happened in Nineveh. Do your own research, obviously. But uh, I think that the point here is that this awful city, this God-forsaken city, has a repentance on an outrageous scale. And it's meant to contrast between Jonah, right? It took a massive storm and a massive fish for Jonah to repent. And all it took was five poorly delivered words for this city of blood to repent. Okay? So, we've seen Jonah's recommissioning, and now we've seen Nineveh's repentance. Uh, let's look at God's response to this whole situation. Because, like, in my mind, we're like, oh, okay, like, they put on some potato sacks and, like, didn't eat for a while. Like, God's going to let them off the hook, really? Like, I don't know about that. Uh, but in verse 10, it says this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is weird. In the first chapter, God declares a righteous judgment and commissions Jonah to go and preach against this city. But now he's re relenting of this punishment? Like, is God being indecisive? Like, this is weird, right? Uh, and the answer to that question uh, lies in the warning itself. So if we can agree that God is all-powerful, he could have done so many things differently in this story, right? When Jonah ran, he could have said, ah, okay, see you, Jonah, you're done. Like, Amos, get over here. You're going to go preach to the city of Nineveh, right? Like, he could have appointed somebody else. He could have done what he did in Exodus, come down on the city in a, in a cloud and, like, confronted the Ninevites uh, himself, personally. Really, the most simple thing would have just been to not give them a warning in the first place, <laughs> Right? Like I said earlier, I think we would all look at the city of Nineveh and go, eh, 
God, I think you'd be pretty just if you just knocked them out like that, you know? The warning itself tells us something critical about God's character that we need to understand. God delights to show mercy to those who least deserve it. God delights to give grace, extravagant and undeserved grace, to those who deserve punishment. And all we have to do is acknowledge our own sin and put our faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. We, we follow him and he takes care of it. He gives us grace. Uh, later on in the story of the Bible, in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew records that Jesus, who is the human embodiment of God, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And just, you know, put this in modern context. Think like pimps and prostitutes, right? Like these people that we would probably look at and say, eh, if I want to be hanging out with them, or Jesus, you know, you probably shouldn't be hanging out with them, right? Uh, and the religious leaders of the day get pretty upset about how Jesus is doing this. But he responds by saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. This compassion is evident all through the story of the Gospels. Jesus consistently moved toward people that were undeserving, unworthy, and unwanted by society. He freely gave of himself in order that they would be healed, both spiritually and physically. In chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, God shows mercy to pagan sailors. Right? The text tells us that they repented and they offered sacrifices to God, which indicated that they wanted to pursue a genuine relationship with this God. In chapter 2, God shows Jonah grace. When Jonah was drowning and dying under the weight of his sin, God raised him up and saved his life. And now, in chapter 3, surprise, surprise, God gives grace again. We see that God shows grace to Nineveh, an ungodly, pagan, war-torn, bloody city. They're just as eligible to receive God's grace as this man of God is. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, Ben Stewart, said this when he was preaching on this chapter of Jonah. He said, The grace of God is powerful enough to save anyone, and the heart of God is compassionate enough to want to. The grace of God is powerful enough to save anyone, and the heart of God is compassionate enough to want to. I think we tend to see God's judgment and His harshness as freely flowing, as an overwhelming torrent ready to destroy us at the first sign of disobedience, but that is not the picture that we see in the story. When God could have abandoned Jonah or let him drown, He saved Jonah and allowed him a second chance. And when God had every right to destroy Nineveh, he didn't. He sent an unwilling messenger uh, to teach the Ninevites of the glory of God's grace. Now, I'm not discounting God's justice. We actually had a whole sermon earlier this semester about God's justice and God's mercy and how both of those are the same. Like, they're two sides of the same coin. So you can go back and listen to that. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I would highly encourage you to listen to it. What I am saying is that the picture of God's heart that we see in Jonah 3 is one of extravagant and perplexing mercy that should make us lean in and ask more questions about who God is and what he cares about. So we'll see more in depth about how Jonah responds to this grace after Thanksgiving break with chapter 4. Um, but I want to ask you the question. Do you understand that God delights to show mercy? That he's not stingy with his grace? He bleeds grace. It is who he is. He's not up in heaven waiting to destroy us just because he can. He rejoices when he gets to show mercy to his creation. Do you live your life in that reality? 
I think if we can become a community that perpetually strives to live in the shadow of His grace, and, and we just proclaim what He's done for us in our lives to those around us, God will start to do some pretty amazing things on this campus, okay? What I'll leave us with is this. One of the words that Jonah uses in his sermon uh, gets translated as destroyed. So he says, 40 days, Nineveh will be over, overthrown. Your, your translation might say that. Um, but this word has two meanings. And the first is, it can mean to destroy something, to overthrow, to overturn something, right? Like if I flipped this table, like it would probably destroy this cup. I don't know. It would destroy the knees of the people in the front row. That would be unfortunate. Um, but it has a second meaning. And that meaning is to turn over. And that, to, to change, thinking about turning over a new leaf. And this is another mark of humor, right? Like Jonah, when he says this sermon, most definitely means destroyed, right? Like he means God is going to overthrow this city. But what happens is that we see the second meaning, right? Instead of overthrowing the city, the city turns over and repents of their actions. Sometimes the people that seem like they're the farthest from God are actually much, much closer than we think that they are. As a community, let's be faithful to the things that God has called us to do, and let's be attuned to the people that God has placed in our lives and how we can point them back to Him and the extravagant grace that flows freely out of Him. That grace and that heart led Jesus to a cross where He suffered and He died in my place and in yours. Our sin demands to be paid. It separates us from God. But Jesus, with a heart of overflowing love, he paid the price that we incurred. And because he has bridged this gap between us and God, we can now live in right relationship with God the Father. If you want to talk more about that, that's just the gospel. Like, If you want to talk more about that, whether you're a Christian or not, how that affects your life, how that can start to affect your life, I would love to talk to you afterwards. Uh, our staff members in the room, our student leaders in the room would love to talk to you afterwards. So uh, with that, I'm going to pray and the worship team is going to come up.